This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air. Like the Kokako, the saddleback or tieke belongs to the New Zealand wattlebird family. A family to which the huia belonged and which has been established in this country since ancient times, much longer than most of our other birds. The saddleback takes its name from the bright reddish saddle on its back, which according to legend is the mark of Maui's hand. Sadly, this attractive bird has disappeared from the main islands and exists only on a few offshore islands, carefully chosen locations for resettlement away from predators, which appears to have saved the tieke from total extinction. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Good day, friends. Today we are fortunate to have Jonathan Boston with us. He is a professor emeritus of policy studies at Victoria University in Wellington School of Government and is the author of a report prepared for the Environmental Defense Society on managed retreat from sea level rise and other uh, climate change and other threats. And he is the author of Transforming the Welfare State and Moving Toward a New Social Contract. You can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcast and going to key in your chaos. Well, welcome back, uh, Jonathan. It's been a while. Yes, and, and uh, good to talk to you, Marvin. Um, very happy to discuss these important issues around um, climate change and specifically managed retreat. So thank you for the opportunity. Well, what is no- <clears throat> known about climate change-related risk, and have the precautions for sea level rising, and have the predictions for sea, <coughs> sea level rise increase with the latest IPCC report. So Marvin, uh, a lot is known about climate change risk, and it, it, the knowledge base has been evolving and increasing rapidly over recent decades. For the benefit of listeners, the IPCC is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and it produces uh, periodic assessments of the research literature uh, over the preceding years. And the most recent IPCC report is what's known as AR6. That's assessment report number six, and it was published in four stages uh, during the latter part of 2021, during 2022, and the most recent final report, which is a synthesis report uh, and uh, summary for policymakers uh, came out just a week or two ago. In relation to sea level rise, I think it's fair to say that the um, uh, the work that scientists have been doing in that space has generated um, a greater understanding of what the risks might be. And then therefore, over the, the last 20, 30 years or so, um, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has gradually increased the uh, the projections uh, as to what the 
increase in the sea level might be globally over the coming decades and centuries. And just quickly to summarize the uh, sixth assessment report, um, and, and this was work was published um, about 18 months ago, the, the Intergovernmental Panel projects that the sea level rise will be in the vicinity of about uh, a third of a meter to uh, upwards of a meter by 2100, depending on what happens to global emissions uh, over the coming decades. So basically they're saying, if we manage to reduce greenhouse gas emissions radically over the next few decades, we might end up with only about a third of a meter of sea level rise by the end of the century. Um, that would be an exceptionally uh, optimistic scenario. Um, however, if we fail to mitigate, if we fail to reduce emissions, and so far globally we have failed, uh, then there could be a sea level rise of a meter, but there's a risk that it could be significantly more than that. And just to quickly give you the, the upper levels, if things went really badly, and if all manner of what are called positive feedbacks kind of entered the arena, and we got a much more rapid melt, say, of the Greenland ice sheet and the West Antarctic ice sheet, then by the end of the century, we could have uh, as much as two meters of sea level rise. By 2150, so that's 127 years, 28 years from now, we, we could have five meters of sea level rise. And in the worst of all possible worlds, uh, we could have 15 meters of sea level rise by uh, the year 2300. So that's almost 200 years from now. But even two meters of sea level rise, Marvin, would be very damaging. Uh, it would have enormous impacts on every coastal settlement and, and pretty well all the main cities uh, that are on the coast globally. And there's lots of them. So so uh, basic point here is uh, the knowledge base here is accumulating. It's 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 developing as as we speak. Uh, and the the best estimates are that we should prepare for uh, at least a meter of sea level rise by the end of the century and, and multimeter sea level rise over the coming centuries. Do you think that these latest predictions are actually in line with earlier theory um, that uh, many scientists expected something like this? So, Marvin, I'm not entirely sure what you're getting at, but it would be fair to say that there has been disagreement among scientists who know about these things over the last 20 or 30 years um, with different scenarios, depending on the assumptions that are made about the level of greenhouse gas emissions that humanity produces, uh, the impact that that will have on the degree of warming of the planet, and then the impact of that warming on some of the big um, uh, okay. processes that will okay. impact on sea level rise. And, and, and the critical ones there will be the melting of the Greenland yeah ice sheet and the West Antarctic ice sheet. And we know a lot more about that now than we did 10 years okay. ago, let alone 20 years ago. Um, and uh, I would say just as a lay person reading the literature, kind of with every passing decade, things get more worrying in terms of, <laughs> of the uh, extent of melting that could occur quite rapidly from these big ice sheets. I remember um, 
talking with the sustainability groups on the University of Otago campus, even though I've never been to university. I was in part of that. And there was always a big debate about how serious it is and what scientists should say, because I think there was a feeling that they shouldn't scare the horses. And when we talked about mitigation, it was always often personal mitigation. You drive an electric car if you can get one, or you recycle and things like that. And didn't talk too much about corporations or governments back in the early days. Mm. Do you think that was a mistake, perhaps? Oh, Marvin, it's hard to know. I, I, I know that many, many scientists have wrestled with the question as to uh, the extent to which they should produce uh, kind of projections that may be very, very alarming to people um, or shield people from kind of what might be alarming um, on on the basis that that might actually reduce um, uh, the level of willingness to do things. If people think if people think things are hopeless, <laughs> then there's a risk that they won't do very much because well they say it's hopeless and there's nothing I can do. Uh, so scientists have debated these things, but I think it'd be fair to say that one of the great features of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is it brings together some of the best scientists from all over the world um, to to debate these issues, to look at the literature and, and, and to produce these reports that um, reflect, if you like, collective wisdom and, and try to do their best to, to say, you know, what, what is understood to be the case. They have a very strong the foundation, and, don't they? Yes, they're very strong foundations. And moreover, the reports include um, statements that have varying degrees of certainty. So, so scientists will say in these reports, you know, we, we have moderate degree of certainty about this, or we have a high degree of certainty about this, and so on. So that can give lay people like me a better sense of, of the extent to which there are significant risks or, or, or not, and also the level of C c certainty or, or confidence that the scientists have about what they're saying. Uh, and, and when it comes to sea level rise, I mean, we, we, we just have to reckon with the fact that it's happening now, Marvin, at a rate of around three to four centimeters a decade. That rate is increasing. There is every reason to believe the rate will increase significantly over the coming decades and beyond. And therefore, uh, if we are going to take the science seriously as in in my view, we must. We have to prepare for a radically different world uh, from what we have experienced in the last 50 years. Um, uh, the world in 50 years' time will be warmer. Uh, it will have a significantly higher sea level, and the impacts of climate change will be greater than they are now. And it's not going to be linear. It's going to be non-linear in the sense that we're going to have abrupt changes uh, rather than just gradual uh, ch ch changes from year to year. Could you talk about the report on funding managed re retreat? You're the main author of it, aren't you? Yes. So I'm I'm the sole author of the okay. report, and I'm a co-author of a working paper that the Environmental Defence Society produced alongside my my report. Mm -hmm. So perhaps if I just say just a little bit about about my report. So what it's about is the whole question of how should we fund 
the movement of people and property out of harm's way in the face of sea level rise uh, in the longer term, but in the shorter term also, how should we fund managed retreat in the face of uh, more extreme flooding events? And as listeners will be well aware, over the last year here in New Zealand, we have had repeated major extreme flooding events um, on the West Coast, in Nelson, in Marlborough, uh, uh, in the Gisborne area repeatedly, in the Coromandel repeatedly, in Northland. And then this year, we've had this enormous downpour of, 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 of rain in Auckland with uh, something in the vicinity of, you know, a third of a meter of rain sort of falling within the space of uh, 24 or 36 hours. And then Cyclone Gabrielle, which readers, sorry, listeners will know did significant damage uh, across much uh, of the northern and eastern part of, 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 of New Zealand. So it's pretty clear already that there are significant numbers of people in harm's way kind of right now uh, from more severe flooding. And as the, as the century progresses, more and more people on the coast are going to have to be uh, moved out of harm's way or protected because if, if we don't protect them or if we don't move them, then there will be very significant property damage and uh, almost certainly uh, uh, a loss of life. So my report is about the whole question, assuming we're going to have to have managed retreat and managed retreat on a reasonably significant scale, indeed a growing scale as the century progresses, who should pay <laughs> to move people out of harm's way? Should there be compensation for property loss and damage from the public purse uh, or not? Uh, how should we manage insurance arrangements in this changing uh, context uh, and so forth? So that's what my report is about. And perhaps one other comment just quickly in terms of the scale of the retreat that may be necessary. Well, we don't know precisely. And that's partly because we don't know exactly how much sea level rise is going to be, as I've indicated earlier, but also because in New Zealand, we suffer from uh, significant vertical land movement, both up and down. At the moment, it's estimated that around 40% of the coastline of New Zealand is subsiding and subsiding at different rates, uh, anywhere between about two centimetres a decade up to about six centimetres a decade. And if you're in an area where there is significant subsidence going on and you've also got sea level rise, then you, you, you have a double <laughs> whammy um, you know, you're, you're, you're going to be faced with uh, a much more rapid change in the level of risk uh, if you're living on the coast. Uh, alongside that, of course, we have these periodic big seismic events like the Canterbury earthquake sequence and the Kaikoura earthquake, uh, earthquake, which, which uh, in the case of Canterbury, uh, had a big impact on um, land subsidence in the eastern part of Christchurch. Some parts subsided at least a meter. In the case of the Kaikoura earthquake, we had some significant rise in uh, in the land, um, vertical land movement upwards. And um, uh, in some cases, that was several meters. Um, and in that event, of course, then places like Kaikoura, which have gone up in the last decade, uh, will have... Um, some retrieve from the impact of sea level rise, at least at least temporarily. So uh, that's the sort of context we're in. 
And my report is looking at, you know, sort of how many people might we have to move and, and how are we going to do it and who's going to pay, but particularly the question who's going to pay. Do we know, have a, a some kind of clear idea where we're subsiding right now? Yes. Yes. So if people are interested, there's a website called the Sea Rise Project, um, which is run by colleagues here at Victoria University. Uh, and they have mapped the coastline of New Zealand. And you can go online and you can see, uh, you know, roughly where uh, the coastline is subsiding, where it's not moving very much at all and where it's where it's going up. Um, I can't give you chapter and verse on this, Marvin, uh, online, but uh, certainly much of the east coast of the North Island of New Zealand and the area where I am, Wellington, that is in the main subsiding. Mm -hmm. and, and then uh, on the west coast, um, uh, I think if my memory serves me correctly, it's mostly vertical land movement upwards. Okay. What are the... Are, are there arguments against providing funding for by public compensation for property loss due to managed retreat? Yes. So there's an active debate about, you know, who should pay and to what extent there should be public compensation. So perhaps, Marvin, if I just quickly run through some of the arguments why we might want public compensation and some of the arguments against, and I'll be trying to be brief about this, but but broadly speaking, the problem we face with sea level rise and more severe floods is that uh, in increasingly uh, people won't be able to get private insurance if they're in harm's way. So the first problem is for, for people in harm's way, they will be vulnerable to uh, losing insurance for their properties or having to pay much higher premiums. And in some cases, those premiums will be so high that they're not affordable, particularly by those with lower incomes. So that's that's the first problem. The second problem is, given that we know that there's going to be sea level rise and that people will be at risk, do we simply leave them there uh, to suffer the consequences or do we move people out of harm's way um, before they suffer significant flooding or inundation? And in my view, for all manner of reasons, it would make sense to move people preemptively or proactively in a precautionary way uh, before they suffer significant harm. Now, if you have proactive managed retreat, well, insurers are not going to pay. If the government says this area on the coastline of uh, the Hawke's Bay or Tyrafferty or in South Dunedin or whatever, this area is going to be subject to managed retreat. There's no way that insurers will say, okay, well, we'll contribute to the cost of that because they're in the business of insuring against risk, not against certainty. And, and so if you have proactive retreat, then, then um, insurers won't come to the party. So then the question is, well, uh, should, should the community as a whole through the state contribute uh, to the to the costs of people having to leave where they may have lived for a very long period of time and and who should bear the the sort of the, the loss of property value and so on now one view might be well it's just bad luck people have chosen to live in risky locations that's their fault um 
you know, there's no reason for the state to step in. But I doubt that's going to be acceptable to most citizens. Um, we already in New Zealand have over um, uh, the best part of a century provided public assistance in the event of natural disasters. So we have, for example, what's called EQC, now the, the Natural Hazards Commission, which has a fund which which provides assistance, um, financial assistance in the event of earthquakes, landslides, and so on. And, and that assistance represents a kind of pooling of risk by the community and uh, therefore a community sharing of, of the cost of natural hazards. And in my view, sea level rise is essentially uh, a natural hazard. It's unwanted by the people who are going to be affected. Uh, it may be impossible to insure against. Uh, and, and if there isn't public assistance, then those with properties that are going to be vulnerable stand to lose perhaps all their, uh, their savings uh, and, and, and be faced with significant hardship. So in my report, Marvin, what I outline are a series of arguments as to why we should provide a dedicated public compensation scheme that would assist in uh, enabling proactive or preemptive managed retreat and would also assist in the event that we uh, have to move people uh, if they've been flooded or inundated by a big storm um, and they haven't been moved um, uh, early enough, if you like, uh, out, of, out of harm's way. And, and I, I run through all the arguments as to why you might want this kind of scheme. And then I look at some of the arguments against, which I'll come to quickly. And, and then I look at how you might design uh, such a scheme. The, the, so the main arguments for having a scheme are that this would be consistent with the kind of risk pooling that New Zealand has done over a long period of time. Um, it, it, it would also be consistent with the view that if the government is going to require people to leave compulsarily from particular locations, then there's been centuries of um, uh, a tradition that where the government, if you like, takes private property, it should compensate um, for um, the the loss of that property uh, to the people who who who, who owned it. Um, there's a final consideration, but there's a lot of other ones. There's a final consideration here, Mervyn, that if if we had a situation where the government doesn't help people to move, but does co-fund uh, protective structures, then what we, were, we will probably end up with will be a, a very significant investment in defensive or protective structures rather than managed retreat. And and in many cases, those defensive structures won't be cost effective. Um, indeed, in many cases, they will simply um, put off the evil day uh, when retreat is essential. And they may, in fact, intensify long, long term risk. Happy to say more about that. Just in terms of your question, well, what are the arguments against having some form of public assistance? Well, first of all, there's the fact that this will be costly and, and that's unavoidable. But the point I would make in response to that concern about, if you like, the fiscal costs, is that we're going to have to bear these costs one way or another. So the question is, what is the most equitable way of bearing the cost? Should we should we share the costs across the community, 
or should we load all the costs onto the unfortunate people who happen to be living in um, vulnerable locations, in many cases, uh, without having realized that they were going to be vulnerable when they bought the particular properties in question. A second argument against having any kind of compensation is what is called compensatory creep. If we compensate people in uh, who are going to be living in vulnerable locations, uh, well, what about um, uh, compensating um, businesses, for example, uh, where climate change makes their business much less um, commercially viable or profitable? So, for example, as the seas warm, uh, it will become more and more and more difficult for uh, aquaculture um, uh, operations in, for example, the Malbus Alps uh, to remain profitable. <clears throat> well, should should the public purse compensate businesses for the loss of of their of their business? Um, and so the concern is once you start you know, com compensating people for the loss of property due to sea level rise and big floods and so on, uh, then where do you stop? Um, wh wh what are the um, what are the limits? Uh, another argument is that um, compensating people for property loss will often result in uh, giving money to people who already have uh, a lot of wealth. They may have multiple properties and, and the property that they own that is at risk may be their holiday home rather than their principal place of residence. And so the concern is if you have some sort of public scheme, then we'll end up transferring uh, uh, money from those who don't own property, of which there's a large number in New Zealand, uh, to those who do own property, and in particular to those who own valuable coastal properties um, that may be only used uh, temporarily each year. And my response to that would be to simply say, well, you could design a scheme uh, which takes equity considerations fully into account. You can, for example, put a financial cap on the total level of assistance that you're prepared to provide. Uh, and or you can say, well, only compensate properties which are your principal places of residence or which are tenanted properties during the course of the year. But we won't, we won't pay compensation to you for the loss of a beach cottage um, which which you only use temporarily each year. So uh, those are some of the arguments, um, Marvin, both for having a public compensation scheme uh, and against. I'm firmly of the view that we need some kind of public compensation scheme. The critical question will be how do we design it in a way that is um, acceptable uh, to the community as a whole and, and, and is durable over time so that we can have a degree of intergenerational as well as intragenerational fairness. Aren't some people more vulnerable to dealing with uh, property loss? Uh, may, their home may be the only capital value they have. Yes. Uh, whereas others uh, may have a large income. And also, we're all, already having a debate to some extent in South Dunedin that will at least may come to uh, a debate over uh, retreat and uh, trying to shield the community from sea level rise. And many of the people who live in South Dunedin, they love it and they've lived there a long time, but many of the people live there 
because they're working class and because that's where they could get uh, buy property slightly less expensively in some cases and a family tradition. So it gets complicated, doesn't it? Oh, Marvin, it certainly does. And I think you've just introduced something which is absolutely fundamental in this in this context to recognize. So when we're talking about managed retreat, we're talking about, you know, the planned uh, movement of people um, from um, places where they may have lived for generations um, and where they have a very strong attachment uh, to to that place. And so in some cases, in, for example, Maori communities, uh, some of the some of the coastal properties that are going to be at risk have been areas of Maori settlement for hundreds of years. Uh, it may be places where they have, you know, buried the dead uh, and with the cemeteries or urupa, um, where there are marae that may be vulnerable and, and other uh, valuable cultural assets that are uh, at risk. And, and in this context, several things need to be uh, taken very seriously. First of all, people are going to have a sense of loss, and, and that loss will be quite profound in many situations, a sense that they are losing, uh, you know, I mean, not just their property, but they're losing their community, they're losing uh, their cultural heritage, um, and so forth. And, and when people face loss, significant loss, uh, they are often resistant to doing things that they might otherwise be willing to do. So uh, managed retreat in many situations is going to be very complex and very controversial and, and is going to have to deal directly with this profound sense of loss that many people will experience. And that's going to be very difficult for communities and governments and so on uh, to manage. The second thing which is really critical to bear in mind is that we're dealing not just obviously with financial loss, we're dealing with non-financial loss. And the non-financial loss in many situations will be more will be felt more keenly than the financial loss. And, and we can't compensate, you know, for the non-financial losses. Uh, at best, we can probably partially compensate for the financial losses, Marvin. So, so you know, when we talk about managed retreat, um, for, for and forgive me if, you know, what I've said in the last 20 minutes has not really taken this properly into account, but, but we're dealing with a situation where there are going to be deep emotions, you know, deep, um, deep uh, sensitivities and, and uh, uh, a real challenge in persuading some people that it's in their interests to move uh, from where they may have lived much of their lives. Yeah, so that's, and in South Dunedin, as you say, Marvin, there's people who've lived there for a long time. Um, in some cases, the, the homes have been, you know, in the family for generations. Uh, there's lots of people there who are quite needy, who are on low incomes, uh, which means moving is going to be difficult. There's, as I understand it, around 40% of the properties that may be at risk in South Dunedin over the coming decades or century uh, they're rented, so there's lots of tenanted properties, so lots of, of people who probably are very low incomes with, with no assets. And as we think about compensatory arrangements, we, we need to be thinking 
very much not just about the people who are going to lose their property or their business but also the people who live who 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 are who rent who, who are tenants and and the question of you know where are they going to go uh in the event of 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 retreat um which is among the many many hmm. you know complex issues we're going to have to deal with and, and which among other things uh means from my perspective we're going to have to have some very good planning and we're going to have to have uh in the case of big retreats such as for example in south Dunedin, we're we're going to have to provide uh new uh affordable homes and for people who are going to rent we're going to have to provide uh uh proper you know affordable good quality social housing and, and all that is going to require significant public investment um is this a good reason for actually starting consultation now or as soon as possible i don't mean saying we're going to move you now or you may need to but have people thinking about it and shouldn't we also think about uh rebuilding community and keeping community together if they have to move yes so there's two or three different issues there marmon so let me deal with the last one first should the community stay together well, I think that's going to depend on the nature of the community that is at stake. Um, I could see that, you know, there may be some small communities, and this would particularly apply to some uh, communities with a very strong Maori uh, presence and heritage. Uh, there may be smaller communities that would definitely want to stay together, if at all possible. Uh, and therefore, if, if you're moving a town or a small, uh, a smaller kind of village, um, from the coast, uh, you may want to try and establish a place inland uh, where the people can move to and, and stay together. In Australia, for example, um, in um, uh, Queensland, uh, a small town of Grantham was moved um, out of harm's way. In this case, it was uh, a river that which co constantly flooded and flooded the town. Uh, that community had around 100 hundred homes so, so as I understand it several hundred people and and they decided yes they were prepared to move and most of them not all of them but most of them moved to a new location on higher ground not far away from from where they had previously lived not everyone moved and not everyone moved if they did move to that new community location but as I understand it the majority of people have done so um, and that was through you know, a consultative process with, um, you know, appropriate community uh, engagement. Having said that, there's going to be lots of places where people don't have a strong sense of community uh, or where they're very big uh, and where you're not going to be able to move everybody to another uh, place uh, and keep them together. And, and, and there'll also be lots of people probably in that situation who won't want to move uh, to one of the new settlements that might be planned. Uh, so if you take South Dunedin as a case in point, you can't simply move, you know, the 10,000 people of South Dunedin to another single location because there isn't one, uh, readily available in, in Dunedin. And lots of the people living in South Dunedin, anyway, even if there was another location, probably wouldn't want to move there. 
So we're going to have to have different arrangements depending on the nature of what the citizens who are affected uh, actually actually want, um, which means we do need to have very, very good participatory mechanisms for establishing uh, community preferences. The issue of when should we start uh, is uh, a different one, Marvin, and, and it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because um, as soon as you start saying, oh, this area of the coast is going to be vulnerable over the next two, three, four, five, six decades, you you run immediately into into the problem that, um, first of all, there may be uncertainty about this, but, but secondly, uh, there's a risk that you will then depress property prices, which then will make it more difficult for the people who live there uh, to move because they will have more difficulty selling their properties. And if they do sell them, they'll get less for them possibly than they had paid. And then if they've got mortgages, they may have difficulty repaying the mortgage and all that. So in, in my view, what we need is a planning framework which enables uh, a coordinated uh, approach to all this, uh, where um, uh, you have a funding scheme or a compensatory scheme uh, in place so that as soon as an area is designated for retreat, uh, the people who are affected uh, can um, uh, organize to have their properties bought out by um, by a public entity that is set up for the purposes of of doing that. Um, and in some cases, uh, for example, you, you might have um, uh, properties being purchased by uh, some sort of government entity, uh, and then the and then the people who live in those properties are renting them back for a period of time until it becomes too risky for them to remain uh, in those in those properties. But the key point here, Marvin, is there's going to be a need for very good coordination, very good planning, uh, uh, and a proper integration of of the different components of the system, including you know the the funding side of it and that's going to be complicated and difficult and and will need well proper legislation and and proper institutions that can manage the the multiple challenges that, that will have to be addressed before we go into funding i might play some music I look around 
Well, that was Simon Kerr and Sweet Lover for those who will come. We we're talking with Jonathan Boston about managed retreat due to climate change, sea level rise, and other um, effects of climate change and natural disaster that are predicted. And you can podcast this by going to or. OAR.org.nz and then going to podcasting, going to Community or Chaos. Um, so we have a lot to cover in the next 15 minutes. Oh, can we learn from other communities and other nations about how to manage um, funds such as what we're talking about? Oh, absolutely, Marvin. So the issues of climate change and sea level rise affect the whole of humanity. Um, and in, the, in relation to sea level rise, I mean, every country which has a coast, and there's only a few that don't. Um, 
moreover, we also have had the experience around the world of people being required to move, not just because of climate change, um, but because, for example, of the building of big hydroelectric dams, such as the Three Gorges Dam in China, and to make way for uh, major um, uh, highway construction and so on. So, the, you know, the movement of people due to government saying, you know, we need this land for something else um, is is not unique uh, to New Zealand and, and not unique to our times. And yes, we can learn um, from the experience of other jurisdictions. It would be fair to say that right now, there are not very many countries which have a well-developed um, policy framework for dealing with what's coming uh, at us from the future uh, in terms of sea level rise and more severe flooding. Um, one of the countries that probably has the most well-developed uh, strategy is in fact the United States, where its federal emergency management agency, what's called FEMA, has over the last uh, 50 years or so moved tens of thousands of people out of harm's way, has bought out private property owners, um, mostly in uh, areas subject to river flooding, such as flooding from the Mississippi or Missouri rivers, um, but also on, on the coast. And in recent years, the Federal Emergency Management Agency has moved from focusing on moving people out of harm's way who have already been flooded several times to a focus on more precautionary measures to um, remove people out of harm's way. And they've developed a new program called Building uh, Resilient Infrastructure and Communities. Um, and, and we can learn from both the experience of FEMA in the past and also from what it's doing right now. Other countries like Australia have, because of the very severe floods in recent times, they've developed new um, policy frameworks for moving people out of harm's way and um, assisting with other forms of adaptation, such as, for example, lifting houses higher off the ground um, and, and in some cases providing defensive structures. In the developing world, uh, a number of countries have put in place quite quite thoughtful and comprehensive um, programs. Fiji, for example, not far from us here in New Zealand, uh, has identified hundreds of villages uh, that are going to be vulnerable to sea level rise and has begun moving some of those villages. In most cases, the villages tend to want to stay together, which is interesting. So the aim there has to be is, is to move a village kind of uh, collectively from one location to a safer location. And in recent times, the government has published a, a long, you know, complicated and, and thoughtful document on, on how uh, this process of managed retreat in Fiji is, is, is going to be um, overseen and, and undertaken. So key point here, Marvin, New Zealand is not alone. Many other countries face similar challenges. Uh, a few countries are perhaps some steps ahead of us. <clears throat> Um, many countries are kind of where we are, which is trying to develop um, a new framework. One other comment perhaps to make in this regard is that um, <clears throat> what we do know is that managed retreat typically uh, 
has greater impacts on disadvantaged people and can intensify uh, socioeconomic inequalities. And so one of the big challenges going forward uh, for New Zealand and indeed all countries that are going to be affected by sea level rise and more powerful storms and so on, one of the big issues is how do we avoid a situation in which um, societies become even more unequal and in those who have the least capacity uh, to adapt uh, are faced with the most severe impacts. And in my view, um, one of the ways New Zealand can try and minimize increased inequality is by having uh, a, a, a funding framework which, which is very explicitly designed to, um, to ensure that those who have the least are protected uh, and those who can afford to lose uh, because they have significant wealth are not fully compensated. Now, others may disagree with my policy preferences, but I think it would be most unfortunate if over the coming decades, uh, the impacts of climate change were to be borne you know, disproportionately by those who are least able uh, to bear those impacts. Can we actually start with this now? For instance, if the government was willing to uh, raise taxes and build, that we need a, we need new housing right now, don't we? We're short sure. of housing. Well, Absolutely. Okay, part, part of the preparation could be building new houses in places that should be safe, that we can predict safe. So yes. you could actually provide housing in, for people in places that are safe, and you'd be doing two or three things at once. You'd be increasing equality. You're providing people that are homeless or have difficulty housing the homeless, and you're mm. providing them with a safer place. Don't Absolutely, we Marvin. Look, to look at the way we raise taxes and raise our money and, and decide that things like infrastructure and housing all, are worth having, are worth supporting, yes. are worth paying for, are worth yes. changing our tax system for. Uh, absolutely, Marvin. Unfortunately, New Zealand over many decades has underinvested in its housing stock and failed to ensure that um, the properties are well designed and are uh, you know, safe, secure, um, easy to heat, and, and so on. Uh, so we've had a poor regulatory framework, we've had inadequate investment, and in terms of infrastructure, as we all know, we've been failing to invest adequately in our transport network, particularly public transport, but also some of our roads. We've been failing to invest properly in our water infrastructure. And now we have an enormous backlog of investments to be made. And the question, Marvin, which I think you're raising is how do we fund that investment? Well, in my view, uh, quite a lot of it's going to have to be private investment but that needs to be mobilized in various ways. But also there is a good case of saying the state needs to be spending more at, at its different levels, central and subnational. And in order to fund that additional expenditure fairly, then better off people uh, uh, in terms of income and wealth uh, need to be paying uh, more in, in taxes. The question of course is 
how to do that um, from a technical point of view, but more importantly, how to build uh, a political case for additional taxation in a context where um, there is never-ending pressure uh, on governments to reduce taxes and very powerful voices arguing for less taxation. So, so there's a big challenge there, Marvin. I'm one of those who certainly believes that we should be spending more and investing more heavily in critical areas of, of housing, infrastructure, healthcare services, and so on. But, but unfortunately, um, uh, well, <laughs> we've got a big challenge in doing that because, uh, uh, you know, people on better in higher incomes and those with more wealth typically don't want to pay uh, more taxes and have all manner of ways of minimizing their tax liability. Do we have examples of countries where they haven't cut taxes nearly as much and where their economy has actually benefited? Well, there's been lots of studies about the relationship between the level of public expenditure and levels of economic growth and well-being. Um, I haven't been keeping up with that literature myself as perhaps as well as I as I should, but there's no question that um, countries in Northern Europe, and particularly Scandinavia, uh, tend to spend more through the state as in terms of as a proportion of gross domestic product, and, and, and those countries tend to have, in broad terms, um, less uh, inequality than we do, and uh, better public services. And um, their economy but, but, but of well. course, yes, in general, that's correct. That's not to say they don't have they don't have challenges. And of course, of course. <laughs> in 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 the current context with you know uh, the COVID pandemic and uh, the war in uh, Ukraine or you know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and so on, obviously uh -huh. there are some uh, sort of big impacts affecting uh, countries all over the world. But in my view, uh, a more egalitarian society is likely to be able to cope better with the challenges that we face, uh, not least those uh, related to climate change and, and other ecological um, problems. Would this help us reach a social consensus about uh... Uh, managed retreat if we actually had more if we were moving if people could see we were moving toward more equality and a fairer tax rate well look i'd make a couple of observations the first is i think it will be possible to to secure uh cross-party agreement on some kind of compensatory framework for sea level rise and more powerful storms and more serious flooding events and so on. I, I may be wrong about that, but I, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that that will be the case. But as a general comment, uh, Marvin, I do think that societies which have more equal um, uh, sharing of resources, sort of a more egalitarian income distribution and wealth distribution, that those societies are typically better able to make difficult decisions to protect long-term interests because they're less polarized. Societies where there are very large 
gaps in in um, income where there is very significant income and wealth inequality, you tend to get greater political polarization. The United States is a classic case at the moment, um, where I think uh, among the many factors that have contributed to the level of of ideological and party polarization in the United States, I think one of the many factors is the high mm. level of uh, income and wealth inequality, something which uh, emerged particularly as a result of the policy changes in the late, uh, well, in the in the early 1980s and, and, and subsequently, which reduced taxes on wealthy people and in you know reduced um, support for those on uh, lower incomes We've and so on. We've got about one minute. Do we? How do you say more to say about how we get, are you optimistic we can move forward toward this more positive direction, particularly preparing for uh, managed retreat? Well, I'm hopeful, um, Marvin, um, but I, I'm very well aware that there are many complex and controversial issues that will need to be addressed. And it will require um, political leadership and uh, some degree of political bravery, I'd say, uh, if we're going to get uh, a, a policy framework that is going to be fit for purpose for the magnitude of the challenges we face, which we must recognize are unprecedented. We have not had to deal with these sorts of problems before. So we will need uh, a, a, a policy framework including okay. thanks a uh, lot. funding that's 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 proper thanks a and, lot jonathan uh, all right really okay you. all right good to talk marvin you can you can actually stay on this podcast was produced by or fm dunedin with support from new zealand on the air